Floyd Hilton, the first to ever receive applause at the communion discussion. Um, you know, Floyd is what you just saw. He's that genuine and that reliable and that relatable. And will often text me in the middle of my day or early in the morning or something, just praying for you, just to let me know. And um, I've just always, always loved uh, Floyd and his heart. And uh, one of our newer um, elders on the team, and I remember when we were putting names forward for eldership, you know, every time Floyd's name came up, people were just like, I really like Floyd. <laughs> it was just that kind of thing. So appreciate you doing that. Not easy to do, um, but you did amazingly well. So, and a great lead up to what we're going to talk about in the book of John this morning. And um, it's interesting, Floyd, that you shared this with me because I, that you shared this um, uh with us this morning because I know that often in our conversations um, uh, we've talked about sort of the ways to get ahead in business or to perform well or to um, uh, uh, take on leadership principles as you're going through your career and those kinds of things and and uh, it's it's very common knowledge, as basic as it is, it's very common knowledge in business practices that if you're going to do well, if you're going to get ahead, you're going to identify the most important things to do and then figure out a plan of how to execute it, to actually do it. And, and as simple as that sounds, when they talk to the people that are most successful in business, they say, well, what, what advice can you give me? And they say, I figured out from my career or my path what the most important things to do were, and I actually did them. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Otherwise known as prioritizing. If, if we were to look in, this is kind of a common examination as we look at this, if we were to look into our checkbooks or our calendars or our Netflix feeds and things like that, we would see the list of priorities of our life right in front of us. And we might look at that list and say, well, I disagree with that list. I don't care about those things as much as this reflects. But the reality is that which we give our time to, that which we spend our money on, that which we devote our energies towards is our priority list. It doesn't, you know, you drive around central Maine and you can see priorities in people's yards. You can see that the, the roof has got some kind of makeshift cover because, you know, money's tight and everything, get all that. And so there's a little bit of a, like something cover it, but the four wheel in the front yard is really awesome. Or, or maybe, you know, can't just pick on them, you know, or maybe, you know, and this isn't a negative, but somebody might say, no, really, we wanted the nicest home we could afford, and that's why we drive 15-year-old cars and that kind of thing. It's just, we see our priorities right in front of our eyes. It's, it's, it's how we, how we um, manage our time or how we invest in what's ahead of us. But this principle of prioritization is more important than just getting what you want out of the material or social things of life. You know this, you're here on a Sunday morning, you're at, you're at church, and we've opened the Bible, so it would be silly of me not to say that the most important place that you can prioritize your life would be your life before the one true God, because it orders everything after it. 
God isn't just a Sunday-only kind of event in our life or a, a fixation that only comes when we need him. He is a God for all of the fabric of our lives. He cares and has, has, has order and has plans and purpose for everything that we do. Even though there isn't a verse in the Bible that says how much Netflix we should watch or how much we should spend on the four-wheeler versus the roof, it is the principles that have guided God's people all along that as those decisions come, we say, I think I know what the Lord wants me to do. And how we look towards eternity shapes everything that we decide on now. And somewhere along the way, God's great message of redemption and hope got twisted. Some have said it's kind of like reprioritizing, but it's really a twisting of his message into a message of me. And how can I experience my life on my terms instead of doing the harder work of looking into the scripture and say, what is the priority list or what is the priority order that God has established for me? And why is that better for me than the one I would have created? And this is why we need to dig into the scriptures so diligently and regularly. And I'm always so thrilled whenever I see so many people here on a Sunday, because isn't this kind of like our, our weekly check-in? If nothing else, we come here and hopefully, prayerfully, Lord willing, someone's up front here opening the scriptures and saying, this is what God really said. Not saying to you, this is what we think you want to hear, or this is what we think the culture's wrestling with only. No, this is what he said. Because it reorients us, it brings us back to our list of better priorities. And even further ahead are the people that don't wait till Sunday to get that prioritization list, that actually have their noses in the book or eyes on their screen or however you get God's word these days, to reprioritize, to reorient yourself. Why? Because you woke up in your flesh and your flesh is constantly at odds with the plan that God has for you. And so hearing from him or reorienting ourselves around him and his plans and and power in our lives is so freeing and sets us straight. This is what God said way back in Deuteronomy to help the, the, the children of Israel understand where their priorities need to be. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. A little bit later in that chapter, a reminder of why this priority exists. He says, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig. We get the pattern here? And vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commands. And here's our priority uh, disclaimer, always. Not just on Sundays, not just when we need a bailout, not just when we've wandered away. Yes, his mercy allows us to come back to him over and over and over again. But he says, if you live this way, if your priority list follows this, then you will recognize that I am the giver of all good things in your life that you didn't have to create on your own. And as Floyd had said to us earlier, you start walking in thankfulness and expressing, saying, I didn't have to do it. 
Jesus, of course, backs this up and he says these words in Matthew 22. After a lawyer had asked Jesus a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You know, a key theme of the gospels, of course, is that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, not fulfill ourselves. And as I scan the landscape of of the common sort of um, quote unquote gospel message of churches today, and, and it's not to say that faith's the only right one. There is definitely a movement of God is recentering and reprioritizing the evangelical church to get back to the roots of the gospel, to make it about him and his work. But there are still so many out there that are peddling a faith that just if you see the results, that means God's in favor of you. If you have more faith, then he will improve your your flow of life and and your all your wish lists and stuff will come true. This is definitely still very prominently peddled in in those that claim to be in the church of Jesus Christ. But as we come to the gospel here in John 21, we've seen now from John's writing that Peter is really a representative of us in a lot of ways. Not just some of you that have the bolder personality or not just some of you that are more anxious to get ahead of a plan. We all know who we are, right? But that, But Peter is a good representative of the common person. The, of, of the flesh, if you will, that gets ahead of the spirit of God. Peter has had his good and his bad moments. We've seen him live out his best of intentions that just kind of blow up in his face and runs out there with plans of his own. We may not be as bold and brash as Peter. Peter was like a natural born leader and just aggressive and everything. But the will that's lying below the surface, the, the desire to, to see these things come about, we can relate. And of course, we had just witnessed in previous chapters that his giant public failure was to deny Jesus three times in a row after Jesus had said, that's exactly what's going to happen. And what did he say? He said, I would never do that. I would never abandon you. I'd never walk away from you. And Jesus said, trust me, rooster's going to crow and then we're going to lock eyes. We saw this last week at Good Friday. And that's exactly what happened. And the following public conversation between Jesus and Peter is a powerful lesson for us on how crucial and costly prioritizing our lives on following Jesus can and should be. And it's important that we view this particular episode through the thoughts and feelings of Peter to catch the power of Jesus intent with him. There are several angles that we could take with this passage. All of them, I think, would be true. But um, as we've been following this, um, the tone of John's letter and introducing ourselves more and more to the life and the actions of Peter, I think it would be best for us to kind of keep this in the lens of how did Peter experience this conversation with Jesus and what does it mean for us? Well, after the failed fishing trip that we heard about last week where the guys had said, look, we're, Jesus said, go wait on a mountain for me and I'll be there. And then he didn't show up for a little while. And so they got a little antsy. And then Peter was the one, again, get his plans ahead of God's. And he says, oh, I'm going fishing. Can't stand this anymore. So he grabs a pole, not that they use poles, and then marches on down. And the rest of the guys are like, we're going too. Sounds like a good plan. Can't sit around here doing nothing. 
And then their whole night of, of toil and struggle, as skilled as they were as fishermen, they, they weren't just like Sunday morning only kind of fishers. These guys knew what they were doing, and yet they caught nothing. So Jesus yells out to them, hey, how's the catch gone? And they're like, oh, we don't have anything. Well, come on here. I've cooked you some breakfast. And by the way, um, before you roll into shore, just drop your nets over there. And you'll find some. So they go to the other side. Remember we said it was like seven and a half feet over. They drop a net. And then they got 153 fish struggling to bring the whole catch in. And Jesus, even in his grace, says, remember, plants you didn't plant, houses you didn't build, and everything that we just saw in Deuteronomy. Jesus says, bring me some of the fish that you caught. And we'll add it to our breakfast. So after all of this, and we're kind of brought into this sweet moment um, Jesus says to them in, in, uh, verse 12, he says, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. There's a mystery about this whole thing. Jesus is resurrected. He appears when he wants to and kind of disappears when he wants to and things. There's a bit of a veil. It seems that when some people see him, they don't quite know that it's him until he reveals himself. And there's something going on with these guys still going, could it be, is it really possible that this is what's going on? But they knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And, and so would the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the, uh, Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he said to them, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. As I said, there's so much that we could extract from this, and some we will attempt to. But the first thing that I'd like us to see is that you and I need to settle on the necessity of love in everything that we do. We can't miss that from Jesus' repetitive question to Peter over and over and over again. Do you love me? Peter was a man of many ambitions. He was a man to, uh, that, was, that was willing to go and, and tackle many dangers even. And Jesus wanted to settle in his heart. But do you love me first and foremost? Love is the very definition of God. That's how John had even introduced us to uh, this work that, that was going on in the Trinity with the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that God so loved the world that he gave. This is the definition of who God is. And it was experienced firsthand by the disciples. Now just imagine for a moment if you've watched some depictions of this in either movies or TV shows or something that show the life of Christ and his disciples. And you start to imagine, you've been around people, you have friends, right, that know how to love really well. They're just very kind or they're very available or they're very forgiving or they're very tolerant or patient or something. And you just kind of go, that person's different. Now imagine having that kind of connection with Jesus, the the one, this is a crude way of saying, it's not the way it works, but the inventor of love, the very definition of how it's supposed to be, he does it perfectly. Could you imagine the magnetic draw to this guy? 
as these guys are living with him. And so for him to challenge Peter, do you love me? They knew what that looked like. Picture your friend that you think is just so good at doing any of those things. And they say to you, are you patient or are you forgiving or are you all these things that they're great at? And you'd be like, well, not as good as you are. I don't know how to answer that question. And there's actually different forms of love that's being referred to here in the language. But the point that Jesus is making to Peter here is that love is necessary for following him. The more you follow the very definition of love, the perfect expression of it, and you don't try to keep up in a similar way, the more obvious it's going to be, the more of an oddball you're going to be if you're following the definition of love and you don't do it as well as he did. Jesus is saying, do you love me? And he starts off by using a word agape. Many of you have heard this and it refers to a divine love. It, it, it uh, involves our will or our affection or it gets to the heart of our purpose or our direction of things. Like agape is sort of like the, the senior version of love, if you will. But Peter is responding with a slightly less version of that. Now, the reason why I'm hesitating a little bit is because some have said, look, we might be making too much of the deal, uh, the, uh, the difference between agape and phileo. This is agape is the love that Jesus is referring to. John wrote it down that way. And then Peter starts responding with a way that says, well, I do, but I kind of love you this way. And some have said it was at the time that this was written, it's too early to draw a distinction. And John was kind of used to using different words to say the same thing. But I got to be honest with you, the more I look at this and having seen this at the end of our study now, almost a year and a half into this, I'm thinking John put these words down differently on purpose. And, And I'm not alone in that. So I'm not just being the only one here speculating. But Jesus is starting off saying, do you love me supremely? Do you love me in a divine sense? Do you love me like way up here? And then he says to Peter, do you love me more than these? And that's another area of speculation. What is he talking about? Because we don't have hand gestures. We don't know. Some have said, do you love me more than the ships and the nets and things like that? Do you love me more than your previous career? But I think Peter was just killing time. I don't think Peter was going, I'm not doing this Jesus following stuff anymore. I'm going fishing. I really think what Peter was doing was he was so antsy and he was so excited to see the Lord. He had already been forgiven of the Lord. The Lord has already appeared to him after the resurrection. Peter is being restored. And I don't think he would turn on the dime and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go back to fishing. So I don't think that Jesus was saying, do you love me more than these boats and nets? I think it's a little bit more. Uh, appropriate or consistent that Jesus is challenging Peter with, do you love me more than these other guys do like you claimed to love me more than them before? He's not saying, do you love me more than the, the other disciples? He would clearly go, no, that guy just beat me at a foot race a couple passages back. Why would I love him more than you, Jesus? No, I think Jesus is saying, remember when you said, that you would never deny me, that even if these guys all failed, even if these guys wimped out, you never would. Remember how confident you were, Peter, in the fact that I could depend on you? How's that going? Do you you love me more than these, you think? Well, Peter's hearing this on the other side of failure. And Jesus started off by calling him the son of John, which is never a good opening line when you're following Jesus. 
because he's referring to the fact that you're acting like the kid who was born of parents, not, not the son of, not, not a son of God. You're not acting like a new creation in Christ. You're actually acting like the guy who's always done things his own way, always had his own plans and always had an ability to try to figure out his own mess. No, I, I'm saying those actions, that boastfulness is the actions of the son of John. But I want to know, Simon Peter, do you love me? And maybe to Peter's credit, which I, again, a little bit of speculation, but I think this is more consistent with what we're, where we're at in the story. He responds with, well, I do love you, but probably not as big as you're laying out there. Phileo is, you know, where we get, you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? There's affection, fondness. It's still a very strong word. There's plenty of times that the Bible refers to God loving us in this way. It's not a weaker form of love. It's just different. And I, and I wonder if Peter is expressing sort of his, his, his reality of, I don't think I'm capable of loving you like you're asking me. You, you just saw what I did, right? You saw me deny you three times. You saw that I'm, I'm kind of weak on this. So I'm not sure if I'm ready to go full on. Yes, I agape you. Would you take phileo instead? This could be Peter's newfound humble response. And, and this is where we stop for a second and just talk about this is very, very key for us in our lives. <clears throat> Real repentance is a change in behavior that is evident over time. You see, Peter wasn't just saying, <clears throat> hey, didn't we just solve this with a, with a conversation a little bit ago? Didn't we just, didn't I just say I'm sorry? And now you're grilling me in front of the guys? Not cool, Jesus. No, Peter is different. Something's really broken in a good way in him. And his response is, is like instantly humbled. I wouldn't say I love you as much as you're asking me. Certainly not going to say I love you more than these guys. They're still here and I walked away. I denied. This is where we start to see a repentant Peter and a change in Peter. And that is going to be made evident over time. You and I are so uh, prone to say, hey, I said I'm sorry. What more do you want from me? And what people want is they want a little bit more distance. They want a little bit more of a track record to see, is this person really different? Have they really changed? So Jesus is drilling in a little bit in front of the others. Excuse me. Made it to my mouth this week. Signs of improvement. Jesus. Sorry if you're visiting, you don't. Spilled it all over myself last week and blah, blah. So Jesus is repeating this question to him over and over again. Of course, for a reason, Jesus doesn't do anything haphazardly. So he's changing the wording a little bit. Now, the third time that he says it to him, he actually brought it down to Peter's level. Do you even have affection for me, Peter? Jesus uses the third time phileo. He says, are, are you sure you would even say that your friendship is strong? Would you even say that you love me to that degree? That's when Peter responds with exasperation and a broken heart. Come on. I was giving you the best I had and now you're even questioning that. But Jesus is asking three times in a row, I think for a very specific reason. How many times did P- Peter deny Jesus? 
So with each time that Peter stepped in it and made it worse and he, he started digging a hole and then he kept digging deeper and deeper. Every time he said, I don't know the man. I've never been around him. And he started swearing and cursing and all that sort of stuff. Jesus is doing a thorough job of investigating Peter's heart and then allowing him to, to repent and to confess in front of others because Peter's leadership, no doubt, has been somewhat diminished after all of that. So Jesus is matching the number of questions and the heart-penetrating questions to match the number of denials. But what Jesus is doing here, again, is something for us to pause on. He's taking the time to examine or expose the offense. He's not just sweeping it under the rug. There isn't anybody more willing to show grace than, than God. And as Peter is kind of kicking himself and he's looking down on himself and all these guys are watching, nobody would want to shame him more uh, less than Jesus. But he's going through this process. There's a lot of shame in this. He's interviewing him and they can all hear it and see it. The, uh, the late uh, British preacher, the great British preacher, preacher Charles Spurgeon says, a man's repentance should be as notorious as his sin. John, the author of this gospel, would go on later to write a smaller letter and say, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Peter, now is your opportunity to admit, to confess, and to let Jesus do his work, which is now all possible now because he came out of the grave. If Peter was just feeling bad on the beach and Jesus never showed up, everyone would be like, ah, oh, shucks, Peter, that's all right. Hey, we all failed. And there'd be no answer for his shame and for his pain. But Jesus has defeated death, means he can forgive sins. And he's standing right before Peter saying, do you love me? And he's not going for revenge here. He's not saying, hey, if you're going to shame me in front of all of these people and you're going to deny me, then I'm going to get my uh, moment of making you squirm. No, he's excavating these lies. He's excavating the deceit in Peter's heart. It's like what Floyd was talking about earlier. It's that, that way we look at things going, there's no way he could love me. I know what I've done. So Jesus is going to walk him through that lie to start believing truth. I can't stress this enough that when we are dealing with our conflicts with one another, that you and I need to take time to examine our hearts. We need to examine the hurts that we have caused on other people when confessing sin. As God's people, we should be the ones that go beyond the whole, I'm sorry, could you just let me out of jail free? That instead we would take the time to say, what have I done? What have I done with you? What have I done before God? And allow him to take the time to examine our hearts. We have a, a pamphlet out in the entryway. We have several of these little mini books that are out on the wall that as you're walking out, you can see them. By the way, it's all free to grab and they're topically based and they're just great biblical counseling material. So if you ever want to peruse those and pick a title, just take it with you and stuff. But we have this long skinny pamphlet back there that I use all the time called The Peacemaking Principles. And in, in one section on sort of the back flap of that, it talks about the seven A's of confession. I just want to read those for you this morning and, and talk through uh, each of them just a, really quickly. The first A when it comes to confession and repentance, what it should look like when you and I own up to who we are and what we've done 
is to address everyone involved. So often when we are blinded by our own sin and our own deceit, we just think we're the ones suffering the worst. How often has somebody said after they've offended or betrayed somebody like, hey, it's not easy on me either, you know. But if I take the time to address everyone involved, I start to think, okay, and then, oh, that would have had a ripple effect of offense on that person. And then I probably led my kids astray when they saw me do this. And then I, and then you start doing inventory and, and going through it in detail. Address everyone involved. Also, avoid if, but, and maybe kind of statements. Yeah, I know I did that. But if you, or if I didn't, or if there wasn't this going on, this kind of deflection. Take the time to admit specifically what you've done. We all love the political response. I'm sorry if you've been offended. That doesn't tell me what you're sorry about. Just tells me you're sorry. Literally, you are sorry. No, instead, take the time to admit specifically the other person needs to hear that you acknowledge what you even did. Admit it specifically. Acknowledge the hurt. And I know that when I did this, this is what it did to you. I have seen, I have seen, it's particularly like in a couple situation or something like that. I have seen the person who thought there was no hope, no future, no direction for their marriage or anything. I have seen that person who was just so tired of being abused, so tired of being mistreated, so tired of being lied to, melt instantly the second somebody said, I know that when I did this, it did that to you. It's so important for us. You mean you you see it? You acknowledge it? And here's a biggie that, that I think is unfortunately just missing from the whole equation so often is that's accept the consequences. We're willing to confess. We're willing to apologize. We're willing to make it right until it doesn't work. That person might say, you've done too much over too long a period of time. I just can't. I just, it, it seems as though the person that has done the offense is the first one to say, oh, you call yourself a Christian. But yet you can't forgive me. There's no acceptance of the consequence. There's no statement that says, I understand I've broken your heart. I understand I've hardened you. I understand I've got you to a place where you're doubting whether or not God could even give you the ability to do that for me. I understand. I accept. Because the real restoration, the forgiveness and everything that happens on the other side isn't going to be about because of your compulsion, because of your begging or any of those sorts of things. It's only going to be because the Lord's moved in that person's heart and given them hope that they can heal. So accept the consequences, no matter what they are. Certainly, we need to alter our behavior. Once I've said I'm sorry about something, once I've named it, once I've evaluated who, who I've hurt and how I've hurt them, everything, I'm going to make a plan to do the opposite. That's what repentance looks like. I'm going to alter my behavior. I'm going to move away from that behavior so I don't keep breaking that person's heart or hurting or offending them. And then lastly, I'm going to ask for their forgiveness. Isn't that weird? Have you ever had that conversation with somebody and say, I know I've done this to you. Will you forgive me? It's so foreign. It's not efficient. You know, we, we have a tendency to talk to everybody like, hey, I'm sorry. I'm eh, No, no, it was just, all right, so we cool? We good? And we didn't say anything. We just expressed the fact, I don't like being at odds with you. Yeah, okay, I don't either. So we good? Can we just go on? And that's fine. Some little offenses, that's what you do. 
But when it comes to these things that really need time and, and, and healing and we need to correct them, we have to do it thoroughly and simply just saying, I have wronged you. Would you grant me your forgiveness? It's extremely important to take the time to do that. And Jesus is taking the time and he's, and he's doing this precise work. He's not using all of this language that I just spelled out. But Peter gets it. When Jesus is asking him these questions, he's not doubting Peter's love. He's, he's refining it. He's shaping it. He's directing it. He's working this out with Peter and he's showing him and the others. Now we get the reason why he's doing this publicly. He's showing Peter and the others that what he want, what Peter wanted most, which was to count for God. And he says, yeah, I still have a plan for you to do that. Hey guys, are you listening? I'm putting Peter back on his feet and we're going to want to follow his lead. Right guys. Jesus is saying, in order for you to to follow me, you're going to have to grow in your love. Not in your ambition, not in your eagerness, not in your might, not in your own plans, but in your love. Peter, prioritize love and you will follow close behind me and you will take care of my sheep and it will count for the Lord's purposes. But love is also necessary for leading Jesus' sheep. I'm not going to look too much into the difference between feeding and tending that Jesus says what, what Peter is supposed to do for his sheep. But it, it is what we would think it is. Feeding is directing them to food. <laughs> Make sure you're doing that, Peter. And we liken that to what we do here in church and everything is that with your, your pastors and your elders and leaders and your other teachers and stuff is that it's our responsibility to bring you towards the places that will give you the most biblical nourishment. But he also says not just about speaking at them. It's not just about teaching them things and stuff. It's about managing them or supervising them, taking on the responsibility of a shepherd. Have that guardianship. Now imagine the honor Peter would have felt after feeling the lowest of the low for a time until Jesus had forgiven him. But then actually Jesus wasn't done with him and said, not only are we okay, but I have a hugely important mission for you. And I want you to take care of the things that are most precious to me, and that is my sheep. If if we had heard of a bank who had a security force in place and they had just kind of blindly let robbers in and just stripped them clean, the minute we would hear from that bank that they restored that security team, went with the same company, you'd be like, I'm taking my money out of that bank. Thank you very much. It's not very good management, is it? Put back in place the people that had uh, allowed the the, um, the perpetrators to get away with all of those things. And yet Jesus is, in a sense, sounding to us like a bad manager. Wait a second. Peter just proved what he's really all about. And you're going to put him, quote unquote, in charge. I don't mean to make that too much like it's just on him. But what he, the authority he's giving the disciples here, you're going to put him in charge of this? We would say Jesus is being a bad manager. But I want you to hear this now. Responsibility on the other side of humility is the secret weapon for effective leadership. This isn't the same Peter. This isn't the son of John. This is Simon Peter, Jesus' follower, Jesus' right-hand man in a lot of ways. Why? Because he's restoring responsibility on the other side of Peter's brokenness. 
Kostenberger says it like this. It's a bit of a paragraph, so please uh, allow me to read it. Perhaps at long last, Peter has learned that he cannot follow Jesus in his own strength and has realized the hollowness of affirming his own loyalty in a way that relies more on his own power of the will than on Jesus' enablement. And here's the warning to us. Likewise, we should soundly distrust self-serving pledges of loyalty today that betray self-reliance rather than a humble awareness of one's own limitations in acting on one's best intentions. Peter before would have sounded like so many of the braggarts we hear uh, today. And, and unfortunately and painfully, we hear it in the pulpits in churches across America Peter would have said, I can do this. I can handle this. I can lead these guys. I have a much greater, more effective love and, and responsibility than all these guys. And Jesus says, now let's clean that out. Let's, let's humble this a little bit and let's see some change here. Well, that certainly happened after Peter had denied Jesus and Jesus came and forgave him anyway. And eventually, some decades later, Peter would write for us in, in his first letter in chapter five. He said, so I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What did he say? He said, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. That's old Peter would have been like, okay, good. You're going to give me a management job. And he says, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Because I can attest to you, Peter says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now we start to see his later instruction in such clearer ways because he's experienced this restoration of Jesus. This is why Jesus requires that his under shepherds love the flock in the same manner as he would. But in order for, for Jesus to entrust uh, those under shepherds with that responsibility, it demands the surgical removal of cancerous leadership, ego and selfish ambition. Peter definitely couldn't even reach for any of that anymore. Prioritizing a love for God and others above ourselves keeps us close behind Jesus and one step ahead of his sheep. Jesus wasn't laying out for Peter leadership principles of do steps one, two, and three, and they're going to eat from the palm of your hand. They're just going to love everything you say, Peter. You're going to move people over here and you're going to do this. No, he said, do you love me? Because if you love me, if you make that the priority of your life, all this other stuff will fall into place. A fulfilling life in Christ must be about priority. It's built by priority. This life that we are called to live doesn't come casually or by accident. You and I have to set our aims towards what John has been telling us all along, believe and follow. And when we prioritize self-denial over self-fulfillment, we've begun on a path towards meaning and purpose beyond what selfish ambition, what we think we want or need, could ever provide. Peter was learning that in order to be the most, to be most effective, he needed to settle in on love as the highest priority he could aim for. Love for God and then a love for his sheep. And Peter was ready to lead because he let Jesus strip away the parts that made him previously the son of John in order to reveal him as 
a son of God. So the questions for us this morning is what penetrating question is Jesus repeatedly asking of your heart? What's the one he keeps leaning into and you're getting a little uncomfortable going, stop asking me that same question, especially with all these people looking. Why would he be doing that? Because he wants to shame you? Because he wants to belittle you? Because he wants to have his authority over you and say you can't breathe? Or is he trying to restore you to something that looks a lot healthier than the way you've been living? How can the answers to the questions that Jesus is asking you give you a new start start towards living for God and for other people? What mission is Jesus giving you as you embrace a life of sacrifice? These are the things that we need to take some time to ask. These are the the, the ways and the pace, if you will, uh, which we should be evaluating our walk with Christ. Give him the time to ask those questions. If he's on repeat, it's for a purpose. Take the time to confess your sin, not to just brush through it. Hey, God, you know, I'm not perfect. But God, the reason why I know I'm not perfect is because I keep doing this or because you keep speaking to me about this. I need your power. I need your your ability to let these things go. Thank you, Lord, for paying the price. I'm going to ask if you would please stand and let's close our time in prayer and ask the Lord as we prepare to go into, Lord willingly, our last section in in, uh, in the Gospel of John that he helps us to see what what we do with our lives as a result of this life-changing gospel. Lord God, I thank you, Father, for all that you have done in our midst. I thank you, Lord, as we prepare to wrap up this book. It's, it's a bittersweet thing. It's, it's incredible that we were able to get this far, but at the same time, Lord, we feel like we've just been walking with you and living with you and hearing your words and seeing your face. And so... Lord, it's something that we wouldn't want to move away from. And so, God, as you prepare us for other parts of the Bible to study, Lord, may we just continue to see you, your face, your ways, your heartbeat to us. But thank you, Lord, for it seems like we pray it so often. Thank you for giving us Peter. Thank you that he was the example of the things not to do. The example of the way in which you can restore a faithless heart and how much you love him. So thank you, Lord, for that, because we know that in him we see us, and that's the love and the grace and the forgiveness that you give to each and every one of us. So, Lord, as we go about our week, there are plenty of things that we're going to endeavor to do for you. There's things that our time together has stirred up, and we're going to fail and fall on our face almost instantly. So, Lord, help us not to walk away from you entirely. May we receive your restoration allow you to dust us off and keep moving forward. Lord, we just thank you, God, for calling us your children. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.